0: It won't be a long sermon today, but it it follows what we did last week. We looked at the creedal statements in Scripture by Paul, and there were a lot of them. We read them as a group, except for a couple that went on for a bit. If you don't know what a creedal statement is, once again, you didn't have all of the books of the Bible together, not for hundreds of years. And so you would teach people how to encapsulate their faith by saying a few phrases. We looked at those by Paul today. We're going to take a look at um, at those from other writers in Scripture. We have a lot of history in our church. That always happens when you show up. Uh, somebody asked me once. They said, "What's back when I did counseling? Don't don't do that now." But back when I did, they would uh, they'd say, "What's the hardest part?" And and I was not really sure there is a hardest part. There are many. But I said, one of the things you always have to remember is when somebody walks into your office, they are bringing their past with them. No matter what you do, that's there. You're going to have to deal with that. And churches have that past as well. And we see our nation has that past. And they, they wonder sometimes, well, should we have a statue to this guy any longer or not? And by the way, we're not alone in that. That's happening all over the world, really, in, in democracies. People saying, do we really like our history? How are we going to deal with our history? We have a lot of history in our church. And one of our battle cries used to be, uh, no creed but the Bible. I understand why they said that. Because by that time, creeds were being used to divide people and define your own group as separate from other believers. Creeds had multiplied, each creedal statement drawing different lines of fellowship. It became so confusing and so frustrating that the story, and I'll, I'll just do this very briefly, not on the notes, people, but I'll, I'll rush ahead on some other things. Alexander Campbell, who is one of the preachers that founded this church back in 1833, this congregation in 1833, was a young man at the University of Glasgow in the west of Scotland. His, his father was already over in the state somewhere. Uh, he didn't, the colonies, uh, he didn't know where he was at the time. And the young man was there, Alex, knowing that, oh, the preachers are coming. The elders are coming. It's a great time because that means everybody gets to take communion. And that was a rare event then. They believed they had to have the elders of the Kirk there, that they had to have certain situations set itself in place. And so people were excited. And before you took communion, you had to go through a small catechism of question and answer to make sure you were one of this particular church and if you were you got a token and so you could come up and you could then take the lord's supper you could give the token to the people that you are somebody who who believes the right things but when he saw the division that that caused this young man looked around and saw other people crying because they could not take communion And they didn't know when they'd ever have a chance for their elders and their leaders to come by. And he felt within his heart, this is wrong. This is wrong, Their fellow believers. And as he walked up, instead of taking communion, he dropped his token in the plate and walked on. That sound of the token hitting the plate is what what historians say was the bell that started the movement that we now call the Church of Christ. We want to, to embrace others, not to separate. And so no creeds but the Bible. But here's the thing. Ancient creeds didn't divide. Ancient creeds were there to bring everybody in and remind us, this is what we believe. This is who we are. We have to remember something vital here, even if it makes you very uncomfortable. The early church didn't have the Bible. They just didn't. Well, they had the Old Testament, but most of them did not have all of the books of the Old Testament in one place. Nobody but the super rich could have something like that. Instead, you would go and listen. You would listen at the synagogue. If if you were very well situated, you could even go to synagogue schools and listen to it there. But have a copy of your own to take home and study? No. No, you don't. And the New Testament books were still being written, the last one would be written probably in the ni- around 90 to 96 AD. And again, probably there are disputes on all of these dates. And, which means you could have seen Jesus, loved Jesus, followed Jesus, and died before the New Testament was even written. And then when it was written, where are these books? Well, the book to Corinthians was not quite surprisingly, in Corinth. And so it took a while to gather these things. How do you keep together before you have the book? We'll talk more about that next week as we talk about how these things are blended. Only princes, bishops, and kings could have the Old Testament. And what do we do now? Even well into the Middle Ages, into the 1600s and in some places to the 1700s, If your church had a Bible, it was chained to a pulpit so nobody could take it and steal it. The building was locked up to make sure. They even had a guard of the building. Um, Almost every church did, called a sexton, whose job it was to make sure the place was secure because this was so hard to find. In many churches yet today, in many uh, Scottish churches that our church is a Christ, you'll still see two pulpits with two Bibles. One uh, is open to the Old Testament, one to the New. And through the year, you will hear all of the Bible read. Reading of the Bible is a huge part of the worship service. You might think, we should do more of that here. And I, I would agree with you, but I would also warn you that eventually you are going to get to Chronicles and Leviticus. And you're going to get the Song of Solomon, and you're going to have a lot of explaining to do. So, uh, again, why, was, why is reading such a big deal? It's the only time you'd ever be able to hear it. Only eight t- and so how do you keep together? Well, in the Middle Ages, they tried some other things as well. The story of the faith could be told in stained glass. Now, ours are just pretty stained glasses, but you've seen the stained glasses that have the, the pictures of uh, God, and there are the apostles, and here's Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They also use passion plays. Some of you have been to passion plays. The, uh, the thorn is a very popular one in America that a lot of churches put on around Easter, and these passion plays would act out a part of scripture, and that way you would all get into it, and then feast days for different saints was an opportunity to have a meal and talk about some of the great things that God has done. Early centuries of the faith, they needed more because they didn't have stained glass windows. They didn't have passion plays. They needed memorized phrasing that this is who we are. And if you're thinking, wow, I, I never thought of that before. You do that too. Not all of you, not everywhere, but you'll stand and you'll turn toward a flag, and you'll put your hand over and say, I pledge allegiance to, why do why do we have kids do this? Why do we have kids memorize a preamble to the Constitution to help them, or the Gettysburg Address or something to help them remember this is who we are. This is our history. These are our people. Well, that's how Christianity survived. It was a way of saying, this is this is what we believe. Now why that's important, is Hebrews 11. Now, Hebrews 11, we're not actually going to look at that this morning, but I would like for you to, and I'd like for you to make some notes about it. uh, Hebrews 11 is sometimes called the faith chapter, or the honor roll of faith chapter in Scripture, because it'll talk about these great people by faith did these great things. But I want you to notice something else. I want you to notice the linguistics, the grammar. By faith, Abraham, and there's a verb. By faith, Noah, there's a verb. By faith, every time, there's a verb. Our faith is not merely intellectual assent. Our faith must create a change in our life. For example, I believe I am married. Therefore, my dating options are limited. I've been... Told that repeatedly. Uh, No, it's not been an issue. No, seriously, after all these years when I found one woman that would have me, it's not like I'm going to think, oh, others will show up. No. So, but what we believe about, for example, we get in a car, we believe that we'll be able to get to that other place. We get in an airplane, we believe the person has uh, some sort of skill that's sitting in the front of the thing. We have faith and we work in faith. Faith requires a verb, not intellectual assent. I have never been to Croatia. I would like to go one day, but I've never seen it. I believe it's there. But that's merely intellectual assent. I do not have faith in Croatia. So, for example, if my lawnmower breaks, I don't go, well, I can't fix it, but I believe in Croatia. I don't go into my closet and say, I would wear that, but there's a Croatia, so I better not. See what I mean? Intellectual assent is one thing. Faith in Scripture requires a verb. So when we're saying these creeds, God is saying, so what? James chapter 2 puts it very bluntly. So what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food, If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person! Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. Now, if that's causing any squirms here, I understand that, because many of us came out of legalistic churches, and there were long lines of these things you do and these things you do not do, and then you may be saved at the end of it. That's not what James is saying. He's saying, don't sit back and say, well, I believe in God, therefore I can coast. No. I don't do the things I do to be a Christian, because I'm a Christian. I do the things I do. We are now in a different place. We believe different things, with therefore we should behave in a different way. One time, I and a couple of friends of mine, uh, back uh, early on in my uh, when we returned to America, were off at the golf course, and as we were about to tee off, the starter came out and said, "I have a single. Would you mind?" because they like it if you go out in fours. It makes it faster for them, and that's fine. And we said, sure, bring him on. Here came out an older man. Now, I, I wouldn't call him that then, but back then, I, yeah, I would. Uh, I wouldn't call him that now, but back then, everybody was old. Older man, he had a T-shirt that had a rather rude message, and he had a hat with a word that we're not going to use here. And we all looked at each other and went, okay. Well, we all hit, and then he hit his and cursed Walked up, hit his, and cursed. That all the way. And finally, at the second hole, the other two were looking at me, and I said, Oh, it's my job then. All right. So I walked over to him, and I said, You might want to know that you're playing with a minister and two deacons. And he cursed and said, I don't mind. That bo- doesn't bother me at all. I'm a Christian, too. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I see a thread. I'm going to pull it. I looked at him, and I said, You're a Christian. He goes, yes i went i i must commend you on your disguise <laughs> oh please i'm holding a club i'll go for it <laughs> our christianity is not to be disguised we are to live what we say we believe the first chapter of John is in part a creedal statement. In fact, there are three creedal statements in John chapter 1. And the rest of the book is proving the truth of the creedal statements found in John chapter 1. Once you realize that, then you go read John chapter, uh, the book of John, it, it takes on a total new meaning. Because you can see he states the creeds and now he's going to explain the stories behind the creeds. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're going to deal with that reality here as we talk about creeds. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's a creedal statement. Let's look at the next one. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. And then the last is a single verse. The word, very important, we grab that concept. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, read the book. Not going to do it here this morning, obviously. Read the book and see light and darkness. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the message. He did become flesh here are the proofs of it. It, it, in, it unfolds right in front of you once you realize what John is doing. We see a quick summation of what we believe, and that is what a creed is. From the Latin credo, or I believe. We believe that Jesus was with God in the beginning. We believe that Jesus is the Word of God, and the ramifications of that are massive because far too many people think that this is the word of God, and Jesus is in it. But Jesus is the word of God, and God gave us a book to help us find him. And that's a very different thing. We do not worship the Bible. We, do, we are not Bible olators. This is not an idol. This is not, a, um, this is not our God. Jesus is. And this points us to him. Once we realize that, everything changes. We believe that Jesus is the creator who made all things. Therefore, every single human is made in the image of God and deserves dignity, respect, justice, and kindness. We believe that Jesus is the source of life and light in the universe, and there is no other. Whenever people have asked me, they'll say, this person has been in and out of therapy so many times. Why aren't they better? Well, you know, sometimes it's genetics and wiring. Sometimes it's that person's reality. We should never judge. Other times it's because the therapist is able to turn on the light. And when the lights go and they see things really, they get it. But they don't fill their life with light because the therapist doesn't speak of God, doesn't speak of right and wrong, doesn't speak of the eternal realities of Jesus Christ. Therefore, when you turn the lights off, the cockroaches come back. We need to be filled with light. And it changes everything. We believe this. The basis of our faith, and therefore the body of our creed, must be Jesus. We erred when we said we had no creed but the Bible. The Bible leads us to Jesus and our faith, our statements of faith, and our lives. But our lives are given to Jesus. It's his life and righteousness that are given to us when we believe. I love Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. What does scripture say? See, we go to scripture. We believe in scripture. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now think of that. First time my dad met Cammie was when he flew in to do our wedding. I don't two days before, something like that. It wasn't much. Well, my dad is a hard man, <laughs> very hard. Uh, if, if he said, empty the trash, you didn't say, I just did it. You emptied the air. You did. I, it was <laughs> right down the line. He, uh, he frightened people. And so I was wondering, how is this going to do? I've kept him from my family the most I could, but he's coming in. Now, the, back in the day, kids, you used to be able to go meet the plane. You didn't have to stay out. Uh, and so we, we're standing there. He comes you know, through the, the, the gangway, what do you call that thing? Anyway, whatever it was, he comes out and immediately walks right past me and hugs her, welcomes her to the family and tells her, that he, she is his daughter, and he's, you know, anything. That, and I'm, I'm looking and going, <laughs> you know, so a couple other people hugged me, so I got in on that. But uh, here, the point being, why was she automatically accepted? Because of the love of the son. Not because of anything she'd said or done. It was credited to her. The scripture says if you believe in God, it is credited to you. For righteousness. Does that mean you can coast now? Go back, go back, and read James, or actually read Romans for that sake. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's not who we are. We're in the family now. We want to act like we're in the family. Well, Paul, I'm sorry, Paul gave us that. Peter gives us the shortest creed I could find in scripture, Matthew 16, 16. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus happened, and that changes everything. Alexander Campbell, by the way, I've not been able to source this, and I'm sure we have scholars in this area that could find it if it's there to be found. But I've been told many times in my life that Alexander Campbell said, if there is no God, nothing matters. But if there is a God... Nothing else matters. Let that grow in you. Whoever said it, thumbs up here. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That changes everything. He is not just our Savior. He is our Lord. That changes everything. Well, because of this, we tune into Jesus for our next two creedal statements. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus came to them and said, here it is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, no racist here, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now here is once again where people can leap off the road into the ditch and wallow around sideways very quickly. They'll say, ooh, teach us all the laws of the Bible. No. Again, not to upset anybody in the room. He did not say, all authority has been given to some books that some people will write about me later. Those books point to Jesus. All authority belongs to Jesus. So what did he teach us? What are the commands? Well, Mark chapter 12 is one example. The most important one, to answer Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. What are they? Love God with everything you've got. And then love your neighbor with everything you've got. You're going to look like Jesus. Next week, we're actually going to look at quotes from ancient Romans about this very thing. About the difference in this group called Christians. When we spent months going through the Sermon on the Mount, many of our teens memorized it or at least big sections of it, and I was very, very impressed by that. But memorizing scripture is very, very valuable because that means it's part of you now. That was hit upon me actually in one of the few times that I've read science fiction. I'm not a big science fiction person, and if you come, if I find you're in a discussion about which is which is greater, Star Wars or Star Trek, I'm, I'm going to make an excuse and ease out of there quickly because they're movies, I'm moving on. Although every time I hear that we're getting a new Space Force, I'm kind of wanting to sign up so I can go pew, 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 <laughs> pew. But anyway, because um, I saw that in a movie too. We had to read a book, and I think it was eighth grade, we read Ray Bradbury's classic Fahrenheit 451. If you've not read it, Ray Bradbury is not your normal fiction writer. That book and another uh, story he wrote called Something Wicked This Way Comes should almost be required. Fahrenheit 451 is the temperature at which paper burst into flames. And he saw a future where people burned books. And in fact, firemen, a fireman's job was to burn books. Books were illegal because you were controlled by screens that were in your house. Entertainment, news, and control. It sounds like a future we might have found. See, and now the screen that we carry with us. But some people, they kept books hidden even though it was death penalty. And it's about a firefighter who sees a book and for some reason saves it. But he meets then a group of people who have memorized books, knowing that the books are going to be burned. They memorize them. One man walks up to the fireman and, and shakes his hand, and he says, I am the book of Job. They, their identities were the books they had memorized. And even as an eighth grader, that hit me. If the Bible were to disappear... I don't have enough of it to recreate it. I need to read more. I need to have it in me. And now as I'm an older man, and I'm seeing my father fight with dementia, I'm able, I've worked with so many others who are in various forms of dementia, and I see what remains. Scripture and songs. Songs usually the longest. Why? Because songs are creeds we sing. That's all. We sing really great theology, too. It is a song, is a theology, but it's a creed, and we sing it because that helps us remember it. We talked about that some last week. We They live in us, songs do, because we memorize them. They become part of who we are. Mark, you can go ahead and bring your group up. The same is true with all the creedal statements in scripture. Most of these that I've read are very, very well known to you, aren't they? We read these a lot. The reason is they encapsulate this is who we are. This is why we are. Martin Luther would often fight with a vile temper and with bouts of depression. And the way he would snap himself out of it was he would stand erect and say out loud, but I have been baptized. And that was his way of saying, I should not be believing like this. I should not be acting like this. I have to behave in a different way. I've been baptized. What a fantastic way to remember what we believe. Would you stand as we look at this creedal statement we read last week from Paul? Would you read it with me? If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The words for confession and profession are almost always the same word in Scripture. To confess our Christ is to profess his, uh, our Christ. I've met people who have changed my life whenever I've asked them, what do they do for a living? And they will say something like, I am paid for doing the work of a lawyer, or I'm paid for doing the work of an electrician, but my profession is Jesus the Christ. Let's pray, then we'll sing. Father, may our jobs be merely our jobs. May our profession be Christ. In the name of Jesus, all who agree say amen. Amen.